Welcome back to part three of the Ron Friends career interview here at the Comic Book Historians podcast with Alex Grand and Jim Thompson. Let's continue. And your Thor run, I felt that what you and DeFalco did was you brought back a lot of the magic from the Jack Kirby, Stan Lee run. Was that intentional? Were you kind of looking at a lot of those old 60s issues? Well, the two things. One was Tom wasn't sure he could do Cosmic. He preferred characters like The Thing and Peter Parker, and and he wasn't sure he could do Thor. Uh Ralph Macchio said, you just did two issues. And he goes, yeah, but those were fill-ins. I I don't know. We'll we'll talk about it. Because I was all hot to do it. I mean, as soon as they offered it to me, I was, you know, I'm a big Basema fan, a big Kirby fan, so I was all hot to do it. And I I was sure Tom could do it, too. But that's one of the reasons why Tom started off by doing the Celestials, because he figured, let's go big. You know, let's go big or go home and see what happens. The biggest thing that pushed us in the direction of the traditional Thor was that we both knew we couldn't do what Walt was doing. Because Walt's connection to that material was so personal. His connection to the Norse myth... His connection to that storyline. I mean, he had done it when he was a kid, remember? He had he'd drawn most of it when he was a kid and yeah. and was recreating it as a professional, you know. We could have tried to do Walt, but we would have failed miserably, I'm sure. You know, I mean, because people know when they're being shucked, you know. So mm-hmm. we knew we couldn't do that. So we were going to try to do a transitional phase where we just go real big and cosmic. And, yeah, and, and our connection to Thor was the Lee Kirby stuff the, mm-hmm. and the Lee Buscema stuff. I mean, I grew up reading the Jerry Conway, John Buscema stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, so we were, we were going to go cosmic, but we also talked about it, and we wanted Thor to have uh, the whole Eric Masterson thing, even though it didn't happen until a year or so into the run, was something we had talked about from the very beginning. Is giving him a is merging him when giving him a human identity again, a human connection to Earth, because we just felt that that was something that helped the character. I mean, even Walt gave him Sigurd Jarlson, gave him that identity as a connection. I mean, Thor should have that connection because yes. what makes Thor not just your typical Asgardian is his connection to us, is his connection to Earth, and right. so you know, Tom and I talked about all of that. And but yeah, that was. There, there wasn't so much an edict like we should just go do Lee Kirby. A lot of that was me because the same way I studied Ditko when I was first awarded Spider-Man, I went deep into Kirby when I was first awarded Thor. And there were people that weren't happy about it. Brett Breeding wasn't happy about it. He loved those two fill-ins we did. It was more my natural style, kind of Basema-ish. And Brett was much more a fan of that. As I started to go more Kirby in our early run he was pushing back against it he wasn't crazy about it and i understand where he's coming from you know i think some of the best stuff we did together as far as blending with him he finally decided to stop fighting the kirby and we did uh, in thor 400 when Cynic came on board there was a a sequence we did uh, called uh, i this hammer or if you knew uru like i knew uru it was (laughs) inked by brett and it's some of my favorite Thor stuff that we did together because I was able to get some of the Kirby weight into the characters, but Brett was embracing it instead of fighting it, and I thought it worked great. Plus, Brett yeah. colored it himself, and it, there, there's like a couple of pinups in there that are just like, wow. Yeah, I love the whole buildup with the set storyline. Such an explosive issue. 
that was. And you guys co-created a lot. In 388, you went inside a celestial's brain, right? Right. And I remember reading that going, my God, what's, so that's what's in there. Well, yeah, I mean, Tom, like I said, that was Tom challenging himself to see if he could do cosmic. He's just a big dive into the deep end of the pool kind of guy. And what really worked with those early, the first couple of years on Thor is how tightly plotted it is. Tom is a structure guy, okay? Yeah. Second to none. I mean, I, of course, I'm a big Don Foco fan, but I don't think there's anybody better working, not just in comics, just as a writer, at structure. He knows how to plot things to get the biggest impact out of it, to get the information out there, and he, he will sow seeds early on, you know, because we did, like, first we introduced Lear and the, and the Celtic yeah. gods. Right, you know, and then we go into the celestial stuff, which mm-hmm. there's things going on in the uh, the B story where Asgard's under attack and these hit and run. You know, the, even the Lear story involved the hit and run attack from the Seth people, and so we have that percolating as the B story. And and I mean, the guy's incredible at those kinds of things. When to bring something up into the spotlight and when to let it fall back into a B story and. It, to this day, I just marvel at his ability to structure and plot to the greatest effect. Uh, yeah, concise and, yeah. And, it, and it really maximizes the impact. Yeah, and there's a lot of characters. There is Mongoose, Quicksand, Earth Force, Grog, the New Warriors, Stellaris, Nobilis, Eric Masterson. I love that character. Then Code Blue, Dargo, you mentioned, the Thoracore. How are these brainstorming sessions? Like, did you guys basically, like you said earlier, you guys talk and it would kind of brainstorm out? Were you guys throwing costume ideas at each other? How did all that work? I'd have to go character by character, incident by incident. There really isn't a, there's not a real pattern to it. We don't have like, okay, Thursday, new idea Thursday, pitch me some ideas. No, we, we, you know, it was never like that. It was. Each one has its own kind of mixture of you guys. Right. Right, exactly. And, you know, I mean, some of them came from me. Earth Force is something that I developed in art school. They were called the Aton Trio because the Aton is the sun disc that they have yeah. in the palm of their hand. Since we were doing the Egyptian gods and everything, I pitched it to DeFalco, and he goes, well, what's an Aton? And I told him, and he goes, nobody knows what an Aton is. So we came up with the different name, Earth Force. And I think we renamed one of the characters. But, you know, these were the two characters that were based on friends of mine, and the one character was based on me. But I got to do them in a Marvel comic years later. You know, I mean, of course, Eric Larson does that kind of shit all the time. He doesn't care. But for me, that was a big thrill to be able to use something from my past. And, I mean, Mongoose was a character we were going to do for Spider-Man and uh, never got around to him before we were shit canned. So, right, because the Mongoose is kind of like a, a Puma-type character in a way. Well, um, the, he was... See, that's the thing. When when we create new villains, because that's what's cool about being able to create, is you create somebody... Uh, Puma simply was faster than Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you read those stories, you know, he yes, he has claws, and yes, he's vicious, and yes, he has super senses and all this kind of stuff. But the reason that he was an incredible deadly foe for Spider-Man is that he's faster than Spider-Man. Yeah. Spider-Man's spider sense could go off and Puma could still nail him. Yes. We had never seen that before. 
you know. And Mongoose was going to be something in a similar vein. The original plan for Mongoose in Spider-Man, because Mongoose shows up in the issue of Spider-Man towards the end of our run, where he fights Crusher Creel and Titania at Mm -hmm. the airport. They were working for the Masters of Evil, and they go to the airport to pick up Mongoose. But once the fight starts, Mongoose sees what's going on and disappears into the crowd. Right. Now, we were going to use him. He, He was letting the Masters of Evil pay for his ticket. But the reason he was coming to America was that he had a past with the Cobra, and that he was here to kill the Cobra. So I was playing off of an old Hot Wheels racetrack thing called the it was the Snake Mongoose Hot Wheels playset. You know, I had those. Ricky, yeah, I had Ricky, both Ticky, of those. Tavi. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's yeah. Ricky Ticky Tavi. The so Cobra I was a green design. car, and the uh, yeah. Mongoose was an orange car. I I love yeah. those guys. Yeah. No, that's that's kind of where it all came from in my brain that we could do this story where Spider-Man gets caught because Spider-Man had already fought Cobra with Mr. Hyde a couple times. That's and awesome. we were going to do something where Spider-Man gets stuck between this grudge match between Mongoose and Cobra. And we never got around to it because we got canned, but we figured we had to rejigger the character a little bit and we st- and we still have never gotten a chance to really tell you his origins, you know. I mean, when we tied him in when we tied him in with High Evolutionary, I think some people are just assuming that he was evolved from a mongoose, which, if maybe okay, but he does wear like a <laughs> he has like a he has a foreign dog tag around his neck, and that's always been a part of his design. So yeah. why would he be wearing that if he was an evolved mongoose? You know that kind of thing. So <laughs> I always had I had, had I never had like fully formed ideas, but I always had some idea of who this who this person was before and why he is the way he is. But, yeah, so we introduced him in Thor, and we got some real mileage out of him. I mean, he's the one that that almost killed Eric Masterson that made it necessary for Thor to merge with him, you know. Right, yeah, that's right. And he was quite a villain, actually, for for a lot of issues. I like Mongoose. I I actually liked our redesign. I redesigned him when he appeared in Thunderstrike. I gave him a new new outfit, but I, I really liked his second look. Yeah. A lot, but, uh... yeah, I really liked Stellaris. I mean, we know she was, you know, a hot number under that outfit until later, but I, I liked her character. I liked uh, the tech of her armor and stuff. Thank you. So New Warriors, tell us about co-creating the New Warriors. Tell us about that. Well, that was Tom kind of acting in his capacity as editor-in-chief because he actually did feel that we should have more teenage characters because he thought that was the best way to draw teenage readers. He, he saw that our readership was starting to skew older, and he actually thought that maybe, you know, he, he contacted some magazine distributors and found out that the most popular magazines at that point were skateboarding magazines, thrasher magazines. Mm-hmm. And he started to pursue crafting a team of teenage characters. And... He just figured, since Thor's the book I'm writing, let's do it in Thor, you know. So he, in, you know, enlisted me in doing some slight redesigns of some of the characters and stuff. But that's, you know, it was it was always intended for it to spin off into its own title. And, and of course, they lucked out getting Fabian and Mark Bagley to do it. But, uh, you know, I mean, it, it, yeah. I mean, we were just kind of there to light the fuse. And it was yeah, those guys and, really and it was an awesome work. fuse. I, I remember because that was for Acts of Vengeance, I think. Right. And uh, right. And Juggernaut was in that issue, 
And I remember, I love the artwork of Thor, like, okay, now I'm getting serious. And he really powers up Mjolnir in this, so much tension. I remember when I read that, I'm like, oh my God, what's going to happen in the next page? I mean, that, that I love well, that. I'm glad to hear that. I mean, the two things with the Falco that were always fun for me, because he's a, he's a total pro, so don't misread mm-hmm. me, but he has an element to him that I think most fans would appreciate in that he can still think like a fan, even though he's a total professional. Yeah. And the thing he used to break through the uh, celestial brain dome, okay, where he used the, he channeled the Asgardian energy of his own body through the hammer and all this kind of stuff, was something that Lee and Kirby had, he used it against Galactus one time. Yeah. When I say Tom thinks like a fan, his attitude is, if Thor can do that, why doesn't he do it more? Yeah, that makes <laughs> you sense. Know? And fans now, the only, now he used true. it sparingly. He used it against the Celestial Dome, and he used it against the Juggernaut, because nothing else defeats the Juggernaut. Otherwise, you're just sending the Juggernaut to different dimensions all the time, right? Mm-hmm. So we used it against the Juggernaut, and it didn't really do much, unfortunately. <laughs> But, you know, that was Tom using the past of the character effectively. And, yeah, I mean, I, I had no problem with, uh, you know, Thor occasionally pulling out the big gun and trying to do some real damage, you know, that kind of thing. I, I think that's what what's interesting to me is our Thor run is very much, em- seems to be very much embraced by, by fans. His Fantastic Four run, not so much. But I, I actually see them as being as having a lot of parallels. Because somehow Eric Masterson isn't held against him the way getting rid of Reed for a while was, you know, that kind of thing. And so I don't really completely grasp it or understand it because I felt that they were both very much the same kind of roller coaster ride, you know? Yeah. Well, I liked both. So tell us, as you mentioned, Eric Masterson, you know, Thor, turns out he was kind of hiding in Eric Masterson's brain there subconsciously. But tell us about evolving Eric Masterson into him becoming Thor. And then starting the Thunderstrike title in 93. Well, initially, like I said, from very early on, we knew we were going to introduce Eric. And we knew what our plan was for Eric. But we let it do. We wanted to do a slow burn on it. We wanted the readers to get to know Eric and to like Eric just as a supporting character before we ever pulled the trigger on the other stuff. And I think we, from talking to people, I think we succeeded in making Eric a likable guy and an admirable guy before we struck him down. So we knew why Thor was connected to this man. It wasn't just, not that Thor might not have done the same thing for just a guy on the street, but that certainly wasn't the case. He knew that Eric would have done the same for him type of thing. So when we merged them, it was just great fun. Tom wanted to do it, and my only hesitation at all was that he wanted a different look. And I said, well, I I can't really say yes then until I come up with something I like. And I sat at a table at a friend's house with Brett Breeding, and we threw some ideas on paper, and we we came up with a look that I liked. And so I called the Falco, and I said, okay, we can pull the trigger on this now because now I know what he looks like, and I'm I'm, I'm happy enough with it, and we're good. And he said, okay. I love that costume. I think it's great. Thank you. I still to this day I think it was a it utilized some stuff that Walt came up with and it, I think it streamlined it without changing it that much and I love that show The Greatest American Hero right. and 
I love the idea of this kind of kooky, funny blonde dude getting powers he doesn't understand and he's crashing into buildings like he's not sure how to do it and he's a funny guy socially awkward and i felt like the eric masterson thor it felt like that to me so when i read it i mean it felt like putting on a glove that i understood i loved it and i love that character and i really enjoyed him and his odd couple thing going on with hercules i love those issues i think that's hilarious well thank you i it was we were having fun with it too and i always think that if the creators are having fun then i think the readers are having fun as well but it was uh you know it it was a great ride i mean i woke up every day we were on four knowing that these were going to be the good old days someday you know Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. we were we were having fun creating and the book was selling well and ralph macchio was happy with it and it was just a, a wonderfully creative time it was great fun but yeah, Eric was, you know, we really didn't work all that hard on Eric. We wanted Eric to be a plain, regular, decent guy that you wouldn't mind hanging out with and then hand him the keys to the kingdom and see how it goes. The only problem with having him be a bit of a screw the the readers don't really like it if your lead character is a screw-up for too long, mm. you know. So we always tried to put him in a different situation. You know, like once he started to get comfortable then we would take him to Asgard and we'd have him deal with some of that stuff. And in much the same way that once we gave Peter Parker the symbiote, you had to make sure as long as, that was a very science fiction-y thing to do to Spider-Man, but as long as Peter reacted like Peter to all this bizarreness, it's okay, right? So what we did that kind of freshened up the strip, I think, for a lot of people is we got rid of the Shakespearean dialogue when it came to Eric and you were seeing everything in the Thor strip through fresh eyes. You were seeing them all through Eric's eyes. And I think that that tends to freshen things up, not just for the readers, but for us as well, you know, for the creators as well. I mean, there's one sequence we did early on with Eric where he goes to Asgard, and the Asgardians are all going to have to go save Odin, and Baldur's saying, we may lose soldiers in the attack, but we've got to attack Annihilus, and we've got to get Odin back for, you know, for Odin, for Asgard. And Eric is standing in the back, and he goes, um, couldn't we sneak in? Yeah. And all the Asgardians look at each other and go, we don't really sneak that much. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And so moments like that, I loved. I just thought yeah. they were wonderful, you know. Yeah. And, and Tom, when we interviewed him, I asked him about that. And he can insert, like, that funny book mode in the middle of the drama, which is which is pretty cool. So then one more question, then Jim's going to go to the next section, is... So when Thunderstrike starts up, that's kind of like when Image was really like exploding and there's a collector's market. You guys had these uh, kind of fancy covers and all that. First, what did you think of the, of the Image revolution when it happened? How did that reflect on the sales of Thunderstrike? It probably couldn't hurt. I mean, the, unfortunately, the, the speculator market was insane at the time. So I'm sure we probably either we, we sold a lot of copies, but I bet you there's a lot of people have still have them in the warehouse, too. You know, that kind of thing. It was a very bizarre time because we were getting ready to wrap up Eric's storyline and it was the sales department that came to us and said, we were thinking about spinning, we, we think you should spin Eric off in his own book. And Tom said, really? The idea came from the sales department. We had to come up with something. It was not our idea to have him become a solo character. But we then huddled and came up with 
Thunderstrike and the name and the mace and all that kind of stuff. So it was all us, but it was at the behest of the uh, sales department. And it was delayed because my mom had a stroke. And oh. my brain was not where it needed to be to get it. I think it was supposed to come out in April, and it didn't come out till August or something like that. But anyway, when we finally did get it up and running, yeah, it had a, you know some foil on the cover. I put, like, one lightning bolt behind him that was supposed to be foil, and production went in and put a lot of lightning bolts in there to make it foil, and it works. I mean, I think it's a solid cover still to this day. And it, it did sell well, and I made I made some money. I think I got like two dollars a book to sign five thousand copies or something like that. It was it oh nice? It's just a crazy, crazy time for mm-hmm. for collecting, and I I don't like that. I don't like the slabbing. I'm an old man. I don't like the slabbing now. I didn't like the collector frenzy then. The Falco was one of the people that was saying, "Guys, didn't we just see this happen to?" baseball cards and 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 collector cards are we going to just stand here and let it happen to comics too and sure as hell that they did you know i mean the whole market exploded but yeah you know i mean and the book sold solid i mean we the book was only canceled after two years along with force works and a bunch of other books because the perlman's people ron perlman's people came in and bought the the, the company there and decided that canceling half the line would make the lo- the half that's left sell twice as well. Mm-hmm. And Tom was at the meeting where they pitched that, and he laughed out loud and realized they weren't kidding. And that's how he got marked for termination. So it was just a very bad time for comics in general, and Marvel in particular. As far as how it worked with the image guy, I never begrudged the image guys going off on their own. I wish they wouldn't have talked about it as much, because if you remember, there was a lot of talk before the books finally came out. (laughs) They were talking. Mm -hmm. They were yapping about it for like a year and a half or two years before the books finally showed up. Right. And that I didn't agree with, but I mean, I don't begrudge these guys their own success. I mean, Mark Silvestri is one of the nicest guys I've ever met in the industry, and any success he has, God love him. You know, I mean, well, I got no problem with any of these guys. I mean, right. we did. were you we frustrated by um, by Heroes Reborn when they did come back? And the reason I was frustrated with Heroes, I wasn't so frustrated with Heroes Reborn. I was frustrated with. Well, wait a minute. Yeah, that was Heroes Reborn. Yes, I was frustrated with them, and I'll tell you why. The reason I was frustrated is when Thunderstrike was canceled, it was canceled because nobody would have considered canceling Thor. But then just a, just a year or two later, they do Heroes Reborn, and they hand stuff over to the image guys, and what happened? They canceled yeah. Thor. Yeah. That That's right. pissed me off. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that really bugged me, yes. But... When they brought Thor back, they brought him back with John Romita Jr. and Klaus Janssen and stuff. So, I mean, you know, he certainly got his due when they brought him back. But, yeah, that part of it was very, very frustrating. Sure, sure. So when you were there when the image guys were at peak power, was there pressure? I know that some people had to change their art a lot to stay current or relevant. Was there pressure for you to draw differently? I think about how Herb Trimpe changed completely in, in what he was doing. Uh, well, that was Herb's choice. My understanding is, you know, that there were some guys who, who embraced that more than others. The one thing I noticed was that Al Milgram started handling 
some of the detail a little differently. I think he thought he was kind of leaning into that a little bit, you know. He would break up the blacks a little bit more, and, and we would talk occasionally, and I'm going, you know, now, as far as I'm concerned, you don't need to do that. And he said, no, it's not really for you, Ron, you know, that kind of thing. So, <laughs> and so I understood where he was coming from, but I never worried about it. Maybe in some of the storytelling, I would acknowledge it. I would try to open up. The, the, the one guy that I really admired when we were going into Thunderstrike was John Romita Jr. And JR had done a cable miniseries at that point, and he was doing, I think, The Punisher, Warzone, and things like that. And so there was elements of his type of storytelling and his type of splash, using splash pages and everything that I incorporated into Thunderstrike, into Thunderstrike number one and and to some of the, uh, the later issues of Thunderstrike. But beyond that, I really could only do it if I understood what they were doing. And quite frankly, putting lines all over somebody's face that don't mean anything, I never understood it. I mean, I can pick a light source and I can shadow it more or something, but those lines don't mean anything. <laughs> so. Yeah. I couldn't do it. I mean, it, it may be if you would have brought in a different anchor that understood what that stuff was, they could have inked over me and added it. I don't know, but I couldn't put it in my pencils because I didn't – what does it, What the hell is that supposed to be? I mean, I understand what crosshatching is, but my God, who has lines huh. all over their face? So what were your last days at Marvel at this point like? You had lost Thunderstrike. Did you have any assignments, or were you just... No. Because you were kind of under contract, weren't you? Yeah. Yeah, I was under contract for several years on Thor and for Thunderstrike. And Mark Grunewald was in charge of that unhappy job. Uh, he tried desperately to find me some work so I could keep my contract. And he had to call me at one point and say, Ron, I'm sorry, it's just not there. And I, I said, Mark, thank you for all of your efforts. I know you've been busting your ass, and I know it's been heartbreaking in that company lately. I said, and I, yeah, I can't thank you enough. I'm okay. I got a call from Mike Carlin. Brett Breeding had told him that Thunderstrike was ending. And Mike Carlin will not he, – he does not believe in poaching talent at all. If you're, if you're busy on something for another company, he will not approach you. But when Brett told him that Thunderstrike was over, he called and offered me the slot on Superman. I, so I was able to tell Mark Grunewald, I'll be okay. I said, I know you've got plenty of other people to worry about. You go worry about them. I'll be okay. And I went over to Superman for a couple of years. Can you talk a little bit more about Mark Grunewald? You know, when we interview a lot of people, they talk about Archie Goodwin as being the best editor they ever worked oh, with. God, he was incredible. Um, Archie was incredible. Yeah, it's always Mark. I, they were both cut from the same cloth. They were both incredibly professional people who never lost sight of the child inside them. That's the two things that they had in common. They were uh, an incredibly important type of person to have in a company like Marvel. People that understood their adult responsibilities and did their jobs well to the top of the standard, but also were very childlike and joyful. And I didn't know Mark Grunewald well. I wish I had known him better. He was very close with Tom DeFalco. So when I was in the offices, a few times I was in the offices, he was very welcoming and very warm. We 
did shows around that time where Mark would do Marvel Olympics and Marvel game shows and stuff to involve the audience and to to make use of the people from Marvel that were there. You know, it's what back when Marvel had an expense account and all that kind of stuff, you know. And so we would do like a Marvel version of Hollywood Squares. We would do Marvel Olympics where we would do stupid things and crawl under chairs. And it was just for goofy fun. And it sounds like was, the bullpen, you know, like that notion that we had in the 60s that there was this magical bullpen where everybody yeah. hung out with Stan yeah. Lee. And, and Mark was the cruise director for all of that. Yeah, you know, I mean, he was just, it, it was terrific. I remember a couple of times being invited into his office and just sitting and yapping when I would be visiting. And, you know, he's just he was a terrific guy. And I really felt for him those last days at Marvel. I mean... You know, his wife has posted stuff about, in his own journal, he would say, you know, there was just entry after entry where I had to fire so-and-so today. And, and it just broke his heart. I mean, I couldn't have helped. I mean, it probably contributed greatly to his to his leaving us. I, I hate it. I hate the idea wow. that that was part of it. But And Archie was the same energy. I mean, <laughs> unfortunately, I didn't know Archie well either. My first trip on a plane as a young man was the premiere of Return of the Jedi in Denver, Colorado. The Marvel people were invited. I was on the regular book, but I also Archie wrote, and I did I penciled ten pages of the actual Return adaptation. So, they rented a tux, flew out to Denver. Joe Duffy was there with a beautiful gown, and Archie had a tux, and we all went to the premiere. We were being hosted by a guy in jeans and sandals, but it was all so silly. But it was the premiere. The mayor of Denver, Colorado, was there and all this kind of jazz, and it was wonderful. And I got to hang around with Archie during that period of time. I remember one time visiting in the offices, and I was in Mary Jo. She only likes to be called Joe. I'm sorry, Joe. <laughs> Joe Duffy had me back in the office. He shared with Archie, and we were sitting there just shooting the breeze. And Archie comes walking in, and she just, indicative of what they kind of thing they would do all the time, she would go, the floor is lava! And he just started jumping up on desks and crawling across flat files <laughs> and jumping from wow. chair to desk to get to his seat without touching the floor. And, you know, we're just a bunch of kids. I, it was just wonderful. That was also the office that I met Steve Ditko in briefly, because he was doing a backup. It was called The Gin or something, for a backup for... Oh, yeah. Was, oh yeah. What was that, what was that book? Coy Coy not Coyote. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Not it was. Uh, it's Coyote. Coyote. Yeah. And he was doing the backups for that, so he came in, and Archie Goodwin went, "Oh, Steve, this is a uh, young Ron Friends. He's the guy that's doing Spider Man right now. They're making him do you." And Steve turned to me, real, you know, straight face. He's like, "Shame on them!" And he put his hand out, and I shook his hand, and and I said, "It's a." Incredible pleasure to meet you, sir. I mean, they're not making me, believe me, you know, that kind of thing. So He did some good work on that. He had some good anchors, and it, I, I like that a lot. We're going to do Superman pretty quickly. So you, Carlin got you to come over to D.C., and it was, yep. it was a very different experience for you from your years at Marvel, wasn't it? Very, very different. It was very scary and very overwhelming, I don't think I ever really got my feet under me, to tell you the truth. You know, because they were doing the weekly books, basically, with the triangle numbering, and it was crazy. 
Mike wasn't the editor anymore. He had been promoted to executive editor. So I had two different editors in the course of that, Joey Cavalieri and, oh my gosh, I'm not thinking of the other gentleman's name, Casey Carlson, one of my two editors on Superman. They were struggling to keep the team together. You know, I mean, it was a very weird time to be in the Superman books because parts of the team were starting to break up. Some people were resentful of other people getting certain treatment, and and it was just a very, very, very weird time to be on the books. My and one Superman something. Superman artist at that. I mean, Ordway was still doing stuff. Ordway had pretty much phased off. Jurgens was writing my title. Bogdanov and Louise were still. Oh, they were great. On, uh, yeah, they were still doing Man of Steel. The Roger Stern and. Paul Ryan were doing the uh, the new quarterly. What was that called? Man of Tomorrow. Who was doing action? Butch. Was Butch Guy still there? No. Barry Kitson and or was it Kieran Dwyer? I don't know. There were a bunch of different people, but I'm trying to remember who was all at my meeting. I know Raj was there. I know Louise was there. John Bogdanov was there. Dan Jurgens was there. Joey Cavalieri was editor by that point, and it was just it, it, it didn't go well. Every time somebody kind of got a rhythm going with, well, well, this would be cool to do. Somebody had a reason why it wasn't a good idea, you know, that kind of thing. And Too many people hard. in the kitchen, isn't it? Well, there's a lot of people in the kitchen, but when, you know, not to take anything away from Joey Cavalieri or Casey Carlson, but Mike Carlin is a very distinct individual. <laughs> I mean, Mike Carlin gave up a lot of brain cells and a lot of heart tissue to making those books what they were. And he wrote Herd on an incredibly creative group of people and did it effectively. That is not something everybody can do. Especially when the people that are doing it are challenging you because you're not Mike Carlin. You understand what I mean? Yeah. So So I felt very deeply, I felt a lot of compassion for Casey and for Joey, especially Joey. Tell me about Superman Red, Superman Blue. You would have to talk to uh, to Glenn Whitmore about that. I came up with Superman. When they were going to do the change in the powers and they were going to do the containment suit, they sent out a memo to everybody on the books that said, if you'd like to pitch a new look for Superman, we'll be looking at him. So feel free, if you have an idea, to pitch it, and we will let you know. And I wasn't planning on it. I was kind of the new guy on the books, so I really wasn't planning on doing anything. I couldn't help but think about it when I was done with my work for the day and all that kind of stuff. And I finally was able to put together a look that I kind of liked, and and I sent it to them and didn't hear anything more. And they at one point sent me my next cover, and they just sent a Xerox of my, my sketch. And I went, so are we doing a month where we're all going to, like, preview our, our designs or something? And they went, no, we picked yours. And I went, oh, nobody told me. <laughs> well, well, we're telling you now. We, we picked your design. And I went, okay. And they gave me, like, a one-time payment that was really great. And I have all the action figures. I, I, they didn't send them me. I had to buy them. But I, they did a shit ton of action figures off of that design. and. Wow. And I bought the watches with the, the new S symbol on it and all that kind of stuff, you know. So that was a lot of fun. But I think they picked mine for two reasons. One is I was, from what I saw, I think I might have been the only one that played with the S. I think yeah. everybody else kept the S normal. And two, 
I think they were already looking at doing Superman Red, Superman Blue. It was something that, that Glenn Whitmore, being the colorist, had wanted to do for a long time. He finally remembered that imaginary story and really wanted to do it. And the fact that my design was monochromatic, I think... I think that helped them choose mine because they, they looked at it and they went, oh, look, and he's all blue. We could finally get Glenn Winmore off our back and we could do Superman Red, Superman Blue because they ended up doing that pretty quickly into that whole storyline. So, yeah, I can't. How, how was Dan Jurgens as a writer? Dan and I never really had a lot of contact. I got the impression he wasn't happy to have me. He tended to be very critical. We had one or two conversations. We had one or two phone conversations, but he was not welcoming as far as, like, he wasn't interested in co-plotting or anything like that. He he very much, I think because one of the things that worked for those books was a little bit of competition between the different titles. And, you know, I think Dan felt that he was in a healthy competition with the other writers, so he was very... He wanted to be very clear on what were his ideas. So he he really wasn't looking, he wasn't inviting me to, like, pitch a bunch of ideas and stuff. He You know, that never came up. I mean, but I didn't feel like I needed to because the books were up and running. He had been writing them for years at that point, you know. It wasn't a collaboration at all like it was with Joe Duffy or Tom DeFalco or Roger Stern or any of those guys, but it worked. But like I said, I was overwhelmed. I mean, you had to, like hit the ground running every month and turn in layouts almost immediately and turn in pencils as quickly as possible. And just, I don't mean this in any other way other than speaking for myself. It was a meat grinder. I had a hard time. There were individual issues that I was happy with the way they came out. And I was certainly proud to be working on Superman and thankful to be working on Superman. But it was a meat grinder. I I was... I don't think I really rose to the occasion very well. The guys that did it for a long time, the Brett Breedings and the John Bogdanovs and the Roger Stearns and the, and the Dan Jurgenses and the Jerry Ordways, the guys who actually did it for any period of time, they have nothing but my respect because uh, it was a tough kick. It was a very tough And last kick. Superman question, you tried to bring DeFalco over to D.C. at that point too, didn't you? No, that was after I was on Strange Visitor. That was after right. uh, the day decided to throw me that bone since I had designed the suit and they wanted to do it as a separate character. That was a whole separate process that we I tried to bring Tom over for, but it didn't work out. And that and, didn't turn into a, the, the book that it was supposed to be no, launched. It was at supposed either, to be an ongoing, and when it didn't turn into an ongoing, I said, so do I go back on Superman? And they went, no, because we just hired a whole bunch of new teams. And I went, oops. So again, being born under a lucky star, I had somewhere else to land. That was, and that takes us back to we Alex. Had, we had done Spider Girl, so we ended up going back. I ended up going back to do MC2 with Tom, yeah. I love that. I've read all of them. I like the ones that you penciled the most. I will say that. But I do love, now, I don't do be love a the whole stuck story. Up, Alex. Don't no, be no, no, I do. Because, well, I mean, <laughs> I grew Olive up on deserves, your stuff. So. Pat Olive um, deserves your love and respect. No, I do. And, and I do because he did some Spider Man stuff too. I do enjoy his stuff a lot. But. Because I was so used to your Thor, I think I just gravitated more to that. But that being said, I loved all the issues of Spider-Girl. That What If 105, yeah, it spawned the MC2 series. This was before the later Thunderstrike Volume 2 you guys did, but you worked on a grown-up Kevin Masterson in A-Next. So how was that? How was kind of continuing everyone growing up, basically? It was great. 
I, I mean, what I said about Thor, knowing that those were the good old days, I would say that A-Next is probably the most wildly, enjoyably creative period that I've ever had professionally in comics. Yeah. Because Tom was editing all the books that first year, and so there may have been a slight shift in the percentages with my contributing to plotting and stuff on a next and we just had a fantastic time it was we were doing the kind of comics that we enjoyed and seeing if we could catch a market with it and that first year was just a lot a lot of fun yeah it was cool to see nova kind of grow up and he was like had a different personality at that point well he was taking himself way more seriously yeah well that was actually i was even when pat was was drawing the book i was occasionally whispering into Tom's ear or into Pat's ear and all that kind of stuff. And I designed the adult Nova and my idea was we needed to pick one guy who was from the prior generation. And basically what I saw was Nova was that generation Superman. Yeah. He was the the establishment now. <laughs> you know, I mean to to our young younger characters, he was the big guy, you know, he had the the ship that orbited this, you know, he was crossed between Superman and Space Ghost. He had the, the starship huh. orbiting and geosynchronous orbit, and he was he was the guy, you know. Yeah. And that whenever whenever I got a chance to draw him, he always had the jutting jaw and was always literally looking down on Spider Girl, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, that was how I kind of saw him. As I kind of picked him as the guy who was a teen in the prior generation, who was now the Superman. And then you ended up back on Spider-Girl. The series was doing pretty well at that point. Tell us about what were the circumstances that got you back onto Spider-Girl after Pat Olive? Well, I was kind of the regular filling guy. What little Pat needed that. I mean, Pat's a machine. He really didn't have need for a, for anybody to, to be a net or anything. But I would do the occasional fill-ins. I was doing catches, catch can freelance around the... Uh, around the business, not not really even the comics business as much. I was finding work on, elsewhere. I did some storyboarding and things like that for companies in California. But what ended up being the case was that Pat had gotten on the radar of some important people at the time at Marvel. Bill Jemis was the publisher or something like that. But he was very he was still involved creatively. He wanted to write. He kind of wanted to be Stanley. And he had seen Pat's work and really liked it. So Pat was offered this work. Spider-Girl was going to be canceled with issue 60, I believe. And Pat had been offered this work involving Bill Jemis that was going to put him on the radar of some important people and hopefully lead to more work and everything. But it was going to require that he leave Spider-Girl early. And he really didn't want to do that. But he couldn't really turn down the new work either knowing Spider-Girl was canceled. So they actually called me to say, would you be willing to come on board and do the last few issues of Spider-Girl? And I said, yeah, absolutely. So I was kind of coming back on board just to kind of steer her into the dock there. And so I came in for the end of Season of the Serpent, and 60 was, I think it was 60, was supposed to be the last issue. The one with all the female characters on the cover, you know, inked by Al Williamson and everything. And it ends with a splash page. That was supposed to be the final issue of Spider-Girl. And as we were, oh, no, no, there was going to be one more. Because we started, the last issue of Spider-Girl was going to be a flash forward another 15 years. 
and Benji was going to be a teenager, and Mayday was going to be a... Tom plotted the whole thing. Mayday mm-hmm. was going to be pushing 30 and all kinds of... It was, it was a cool little story. I penciled the first three or four pages. Al Williamson inked the first two or three pages, and then we got word that we weren't canceled again on April Fool's Day. Right. They called Tom and said the book's not canceled, and he finally figured out that it really wasn't canceled, and they needed a plot by the next Tuesday or something. And my reaction when I got a call from the office was, so you're bringing Pat back, right? And they said, well, Pat's working on these other projects with Bill Jemis. And I said, I know, but if he knows that Spider-Girl's not canceled, he's going to want to come back to Spider-Girl. Right. And I talked to Pat about it, and he says, Ron, I'm okay here. Spider-Girl, you co-created her. Go do Spider-Girl. And I said, okay. So I was back on Spider-Girl. Yeah. And you worked on Spider-Girl till 2010. I mean, it went for a while, like 12 years or something. That's Oh, yeah, it went to, well, we went to 100. We mm-hmm. went from 60, 61 to all the way to 100. And then that was only canceled with the idea we had to lie about it. But they were they were already planning on doing the relaunch as Amazing Spider-Girl. Yes. And then we did Amazing Spider-Girl for 30 issues. Uh-huh. Then we did Spectacular Spider-Girl turned into like a four or five issue miniseries. And then we went into the Spider-Man family for another, I don't know, another couple of years worth of stories, I guess. Yeah, it went on for quite a while after I came back. I mean, that's the thing. When it when it survived the cancellation at 6061, that was still based on what Tom and Pat were doing. So, I, yes. you know, I didn't really feel like I was a part of that other than I was benefiting from it. But when we got to the next time that it was going to be canceled and it survived, then I knew, okay, people have been seeing my work, so they're still supporting the book. That's good. And yeah. I slowly became more acclimated. I mean, I, I was really working in Pat's shadow those first couple of years back. I was, I was just trying to do a cartoonier version of what he was doing. And I mean, the character got really skinny and mm-hmm. very cartoony. And I look back on this stuff now and I'm not, I'm not all that crazy about it, but I finally got to a point where I was able to put the ghost of Pat Olive behind me and kind of re-embrace my own attitudes about the characters and stuff. I mean, early on when I was pitching stories, I was always pitching stories that were MC2 stories but weren't Spider-Girl stories because I wanted to bring all my old friends back. You know, I wanted to do all the characters at once. And and Tom would constantly say, Ron, that's an interesting story, but it's not a Mayday story. We, We need to do stories about Mayday. And he was absolutely right. So. Yeah, I love the whole MC2 thing because I was growing up with the characters. So it was it felt like a continuity for me. So then you did some Captain America story, Sentinels of Liberty, a couple issues. Then tell us about doing Thunderstrike Volume 2 because I really like Eric Masterson. It was cool to see kind of the Earth 616 version of Kevin kind of grow into him being a teenager. So were you guys kind of thinking, okay, we have to make this different from what we did with him in A Next? Oh, absolutely. Tell, yeah. Yeah. Tell us about the genesis of that. Well, what happened was DeFalco, we were wrapping up Spider Girl, and DeFalco sent out an email to everybody at Marvel that said, Ron and I are wrapping up Spider Girl. Does anybody have anything they'd be interested in having us do? And I'm trying to remember the gentleman's name. It was somebody who was in charge of, like, the trade paperbacks or something like that. I forget. He was he was an editor in charge of something. And he went, well, I don't know about everybody else, but I'd love to see you do a Thunderstrike miniseries. Mm-hmm. 
without telling us what he wanted it to be, he just said, how about a Thunderstrike miniseries? And Tom, and we kind of went, oh, well, there's some interest anyway. And then the next time Tom was in the office, he found out it was already on the f- schedule. Yeah. <laughs> and he went, Ron, this is scheduled. I went, what? I, we don't even have an idea. And he went, I know, we better get one fast because this thing is scheduled. Mm-hmm. So the first thing we thought, are we going to bring Eric back? And Tom and I had both gone through major losses at that point. So we did not feel it would be playing fair with the readers to just bring him back because we didn't feel like we had an idea that sold it at all, you know. So it became second generation. It became doing Kevin again. And we basically just had a handshake agreement that wherever we went right with the MC2 Kevin, we'd go left with the 616 Kevin. Mm-hmm. And that's what we did. So, you know, that's kind of how we ended up where we ended up. It kind of fell through the cracks. I mean, to this day, I talk to Thunderstrike fans at conventions who don't know that Kevin had his own miniseries in the 616, you know, that kind of thing. So well, it's like a lot of things these days. A lot of my fans have moved on and are now collecting Randy Bowen statues and original art, and they don't really keep track of what's being done in the comics, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I do like that Kevin was used again, even after you guys were finished with the volume two. That I think what in Guardians of the Galaxy or one of those that he was in there for as uh, Guardians thought, of the Galaxy. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. I, well, I, mean, I like glad, that they're using him. Yeah, I mean, I don't have a problem with them, you know, keeping him alive. We didn't. We, you know, we certainly were hoping that he get some use from other writers and other artists and stuff. I mean, we certainly didn't do the miniseries just to kill him off. I mean, of course, we were hoping we'd get a series out of it, but it, you know, it just didn't work out that way. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's anytime you create something new, you feel a certain amount of ownership to it. But if you're a grown-up, you realize that Marvel owns it. You don't. And some of it's going to make you wince, and some of it's going to make you weep. <laughs> and... And sometimes it's better not to read it at all, you know, that kind of thing. So, Ron, we're running short on time. I want to ask you a couple of things. After that, you go back to D.C., and it's now in New 52 world. Were people happy about that or ashamed of themselves? Or what was it like to be part of New 52? I didn't feel like a part of anything. What I was called upon to do by different editors, they had started a policy, and I think Bobby Chase who used to be at Marvel had something to do with it, where some of the younger artists, the younger illustrators were having trouble with the blank page. And there was trouble. They had tried to reinstitute plots, but like Tom DeFalco was doing plots for Legion Lost, but the artist Pete Woods, who's a fantastic illustrator, had never worked plot script. We were that far away from Marvel style that he wasn't comfortable working from a plot. He wanted a full script. So they were trying to retrain some of their illustrators to work plot script. So I was doing layouts on Legion Lost for for Pete, even though he really didn't need them artistically. He was just for storytelling purposes. And I ended up doing some other books at DC, part of the New 52 stuff, Katana, Justice League Dark. There were a couple other books. What was the, the seven... Team Sovereign seven? seven or something it was one of the books that Team came seven. over from Team Seven. Team Seven, I guess that's what it was. Yeah, where they they included like Black Canary and characters like that. It was, but it was over from Wildstorm. I, I did layouts on the first few issues of that, 
and most of it was for no credit because you they they didn't want to screw up the uh, what's the word I'm trying to think of the incentive they didn't want to divide the incentive further so they would pay you a flat fee to do these things I did some Superboys for I think those were DeFalco stories too I'm not sure yeah I think he was working on that so I, I, did, was that you know, I did Superboy that was from the tube or what I mean it was it was so strange yeah. by that point yeah. Yeah, it was yeah, it was the new Fifty Two Superboy, and so there was a lot of that going on, and a lot of it. Uh, there were a couple of times that I actually got a credit, and it was interesting because you know I got a credit on one of the Superboys. It's like a special thanks to Ron Friends or something, and people assumed that it was because it was a Tom DeFalco story that I must have helped him plot it or something. Believe me, Tom DeFalco does not need my help coming up with story ideas. Okay, that credit was because I did thumbnails for the artist. And that was the re- that was the only reason for it. They did a big crossover at that point between Teen Titans and one of the other groups. I forget what it was because there was a lot of stuff that was coming over from Wildstorm at that point. But they did a big crossover that it was going to be a big fight scene and all this kind of stuff. And the artist needed some help off of you either working off plots or full scripts. A couple of times I I did work off of full scripts. So they were just basically trying to give the the new illustrators a, uh, a leg up so they wouldn't have to deal with the blank page, you know, that kind of thing. So I was doing that. I, I found out that, like, Scott McDaniel was doing that, and I think even Larry Hama did some stuff for them, just trying to help out the next generation of illustrators, you know, and get paid for it, you know, that kind of thing. So. A lot of them mm-hmm. still need help today. Well, that's all a matter of opinion. It's certainly a different world now. I mean, schedules are much more fluid and deadlines aren't aren't as deadly. These days, with everything just being sold through comic shops, if you miss a deadline, they just resolicit it and nobody cares. So and there's yeah. That wasn't art. the way it used to be. I mean, there, people like Chris Samney, there's some fantastic storytellers still today. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's... Actually, there's there's more fantastic illustrators out there than ever before i they're just not doing what we remember as being comics the marvel style of dynamic storytelling just doesn't isn't out there anymore i don't think there's anybody currently that's really representing that much but the people that have discovered comics in the last five ten years they don't care they love the comics that they love everybody loves the comics that were being done when they discovered comics I mean, that's why my wheelhouse is the late 60s and 70s. You know, that's everybody, their ideal comic experience is whatever was going on when they discovered comics. That's what I found out. And that's completely fair. You know, I mean, that's that's what makes the world go around. Different opinions. That, that's exactly right. Alex, should we leave it? That, that seems like a good yeah. Yeah. ending. So, and I would say that when I was a kid, there were two comics I noticed on the newsstand at 7-Eleven, and that was a Thor issue you did with an eyeless on the cover, and they're kind of in a cave. And then there is this Power Man and Iron Fist fighting Chemistro. And those are the two comics that I picked up. The Chemistro one was fine, but the Thor that you and DeFalco did, that sucked me in, where I was like, Mom, I need you to find me a comic shop. I'm going to read these, and I'm going to find out what happened before this and got me into collecting the Marvel Universe, trade paperbacks, and classic X-Men. Your art, the stories that you and DeFalco told, were my gateway 
into the entire Marvel universe. And I love the stuff that you've done. I'm really thrilled with today's podcast. And I can still even now go back and read that stuff. And I feel that same magic as I felt when I was like 12 and looking at this stuff. Well, I appreciate that, Alex. I really do. Of course, we have to give full credit to Jack Kirby because that Thor cover was ripped off of the Jack Kirby Fantastic Four cover with the Hulk. (laughs) (laughs) And I found that out later. It all comes back to Kirby. It does. It but, does. I know that. Uh, no, and, and uh, I will say, since we didn't have time to do it now, this has been my this has been my history, and currently I'm working for Sitcomics.net out in California, doing a book called Blue Baron, and working on a book called The Heroes Union, and mm-hmm. it is being produced by a gentleman named Darren Henry, who discovered comics in the '70s. So this is very, you know, he he sought out Sal Buscema to pencil these books for him. And Sal had retired from penciling, but uh, recommended me because of our work together on Spider-Girl. And Sal is inking this stuff. And again, you you know, Darren grew up reading the stuff in the 70s, and that's what he's trying to channel with these books. And they're great fun. I highly recommend them. Sit Comics, there's several titles being done by different artists, all terrific, all with a different voice. And Darren's doing some wonderful work. So I I do want to put a a pin in that for everybody, okay? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, because it's like sitcoms. But as a comic, right? And that's, that's right, kind because, of the concept. Well, that's the Darren for years. He started out working as a as an assistant on Seinfeld and has worked on sitcoms most of his life as a, a writer and a showrunner for Disney and for overseas producers and stuff. That's why he, he went with sitcomics. It's not because they're all humor comics or anything. He's writing some really solid superhero stuff, kind of turning some of the tropes on their head and everything and, and right, having a lot absolutely. of fun with it. So, yeah, definitely check it out. You guys need to check it out, but everybody needs to check it out. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right? And also, everyone check out uh, Ron Friends' Outdoor Life from 2013. He did an interesting <laughs> segment there that actually does feel like a Marvel comic, but there are no costumes. That's what but, they wanted uh, at the time. They wanted it to look more like a Marvel comic. Then the new editor came on and said, that's stupid. We don't want to do that anymore, and, and I wasn't doing it anymore. But he pays your money, and you take your chances. But thank you for that. <laughs> I appreciate it. Well, Ron, thanks so much for joining Jim and I today. We, we had a blast. Well, it's been a lot of fun for me. Walking down memory lane and everything, I appreciate the fact you guys are out there doing these podcasts and keeping some of the history alive and informed. So thank you very much, guys. 